Hi, so this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. We are on the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm the director of We Be Imagining and the co-host of this podcast. I use she, her pronouns. Today is Saturday, August 8th, 2020. It's approximately 2.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm here with Awalalo, who is a senior lecturer at Keele University. His research interests are in the areas of human rights and social justice broadly conceived and draws on a wide range of fields, including the sociology of law, sociolegal studies, critical social and legal theory, and post-colonial perspectives. Um, how are you doing today, Awal? I'm doing well. I'm uh, very grateful to be here. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the show and to discuss the Aroma protests. Um, I read your kind of traditional academic bio, but I want to give you an opportunity if you would like to say a little bit, little bit more about yourself um, and your kind of personal connection to the Oromo protests? Yeah, so I am uh, an Oromo by ethnicity. I am from Ethiopia, currently uh, teaching in the UK. Um, Ethiopia is a country um, historically characterized by um, extreme political repression, uh, cultural subordination, and uh, economic exploitation. Uh, and these problems are problems that are primarily indexed to ethnicity and the Oromo people uh, from which I come uh, are the largest ethnic groups in Ethiopia, but also uh, a community that is particularly affected uh, by these problems of uh, repression and, and, and marginalization. So uh, I'm somebody who uh, is primarily researching uh, on human rights, uh, social justice issues, uh, the different ways in which uh, law as uh, a system, uh, legal institutions such as courts, for example, could be used uh, to open up spaces for progressive social and political. Needs. Those are the kinds of things that I do, but I also uh, write uh, and, and uh, comment on political issues uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, the Oromo protest was one of those, um, I think, key social movements that I have been observing for the last, um, since basically November of 2015, when the movement started. Thank you. Thank you for that context. And one of my questions is that, um, similarly to the Black Lives Matter movement, although there's like a, a very specific historical distinction, there's a history, a very long history that's leading to this political moment where so there's such an outpouring of youth, both in Ethiopia and the United States, um, in support of the Aroma movement. Um, however, the, the assassination of Achalo Hundessa is a very particular political flashpoint to understand what's going on right now in Ethiopia. And so one of the things that you've publicly stated is that his music, he was he was the soundtrack to the Oromo revolution, beginning with Malangira, and, and I apologize for my very uh, American accent, um, and this question of what existence is mine. So yeah. I'm curious how much you feel the existential angst he captured in his music um, is represented in, in the current political situation. How much is that translated to, you know, a coherent political platform and an agenda? No, I, I don't think uh, his uh, his visions for the Oromo people, uh, his cries, his concerns, uh, his intellectual uh, work, his political work, his musical work, uh, have been uh, translated into real uh, political action. Uh, this is somebody uh, who had the particular uh, ability, particular talent, uh, 
in terms of looking at events on the ground and finding the appropriate kind of uh, language that is poetic, uh, that speaks to the culture of the people that he comes from, uh, and articulates those, those issues in, in a way that people can relate to, in a way that people uh, can understand uh, and, and respond. And I think one of his uh, exceptional gifts is uh, mobilization uh, of a real political action. And I think his contribution to the Oromo protests of 2015 to 2018 uh, that ushered the current prime minister into office is immense. You know, I can't say that the Oromo protests could not have achieved what it has achieved without Haj Alu uh, powerful lyrics and powerful uh, songs um, because you cannot predict how history uh, unfolds. But his contribution is immense. Um, and I think uh, looking back, uh, you could certainly say that his role as part of that movement in galvanizing groundswell of resistance to that system uh, is so immense that it is very difficult for the almost going forward to achieve similar uh, success in mobilizing people uh, without thinking about the role of Hajj Al-Hundesa, or without having somebody who could do what Hajj Al-Hundesa uh, did. So um, he is somebody as consequential as that, as transformative as that. Uh, but uh, everything that he has been uh, talking about, everything that he has um, uh, campaigned for and advocated in his music and his political activism uh, have not been translated into political action. If anything, there is a considerable regression uh, towards uh, the past and you know, to the resurrection, if you like, of certain symbols and ideas that Haj Alu despised uh, so much and which the Oromo people, broadly speaking, and people in the south of Ethiopia uh, despise. Uh, so this is somebody who played uh, a pivotal role, uh, but unfortunately uh, his cries, his concern, his heart, uh, all um, the energies that he poured onto that movement, at least for where we are right now. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean or what you're pointing to when you say political re- regression and the uplifting of symbols that he despised? Uh, which particular actors are you are, are you referring to? Well, you know, Ethiopian history um, is a history really of two main uh, ethnic groups, um, um, maybe three at most when you look at the history of the last uh, three decades. Uh, but much of Ethiopia's history is shaped by this antagonism between the Oromos and the Maharans. Although there were moments in Ethiopian history where the Tugayans also played a very central role. So the year between 1991 and 2018, um, until the current prime minister came to office, was a period that was... Uh, predominantly shaped by the influence of Tigrayan elites. But before that, Ethiopian history is mainly shaped uh, by uh, ethnic Amhara uh, elites or a system that is, uh, broadly speaking, uh, operated as as an Amhara in terms of speaking the Amhara language and promoting uh, the Amhara culture. Uh, The Oromos, as the single largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, uh, 
uh, were the groups that were resisting against that system and therefore the system specifically in a very particular way marginalized and pushed uh, Oromos and um, their culture and ways of being to some kind of subterranean uh, existence, not allowing them to have a presence uh, in the national life. Uh, so Hajalu, um, on a number of occasions and several moments in his songs, uh, brings up these historical injustices that rendered the horrible unspeakable, inaudible. And the things that kind of uh, rendered it um, unintelligible within the Ethiopian um, kind of cultural and social imaginary. Uh, so he talked a lot about, for example, the uh, founder of the modern Ethiopian state, Imper Menelik, and his role in terms of uh, the violence that has been perpetrated uh, against the Oromos uh, and the ways in which the system that he has created uh, made the Oromos essentially serfs uh, on their own land uh, for a considerably long period of time, that is until 1974, when um, the kind of direct military dictatorship came to power uh, and at least changed the, the relationship between uh, landholders and serfs. Um, so the Derek addressed one single problem, which is the problem that what, what we call in Ethiopia the land question, um, in, in the sense of redistributing the land. Uh, but other questions around cultural uh, justice, um, equality between different ethnic groups, linguistic equality, those questions have not been addressed. And of course, also questions of uh, rule of law, human rights, those kinds of political questions, political rights, uh, were things that were unspeakable uh, in, that, in that period. So Hajalu sang a lot about um, the atrocities that have been perpetrated against Menelik, against uh, the Ormos by Menelik, and the discursive uh, system that has been put in place that kept the Oromo people at the margin and admitted the responsibility for that. And what we now hear um, from, you know, including uh, the Ethiopian uh, prime minister, is the idea that there was a certain moment of greatness uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, where people like Menelik played a pivotal role in terms of founding the state uh, and also um, defending uh, its sovereignty and so on and so forth. Uh, and this is presented in a very linear manner without uh, accounting for some of the atrocities that have been perpetrated uh, against almost any other people, and the transgenerational trauma that a considerable number of people in the south of the country uh, still experience and still deal with. And, and, and the system of subjugation that still kept most of uh, people of the south uh, in their place, uh, so to speak, um, not allowing them uh, the possibility of taking an active part in the national life. Uh, these are people who occupy the periphery. They have always been on the periphery. They have been fighting and struggling to come to the center, to have their culture, their ideas, their worldviews reflected at the center so that what we call the Ethiopian state is a country, a culture, uh, an entity that reflects and embodies the wishes and aspirations of all of the people who live in the Ethiopian state. And currently the cultures idea that reflects is really mainly an Amhara uh, culture. 
language, speaks Amharic language. So um, while you know people like Hajalu, a lot of Oromo intellectuals, uh, Oromo political organizations uh, have used this as one of the main reasons for their resistance and articulated that in a number of different ways you have now an Oromo prime minister uh, who is trying to resurrect uh, the older uh, Ethiopia. So whoever listened to Hajalu's um, enormous work, Hajalu's creative work, um, and, and saw what is actually happening on the ground now, I uh, can't really say that any of the things that he has been calling for, or any of the things that he has uh, been working towards, uh, have actually materialized. If anything, it is the opposite of Azar's vision and the vision of so many people, um, so many nations and nationalities in the south of Ethiopia. It's important to note that Ethiopia is not a nation state. Ethiopia is a multi-ethnic empire. And all of the different ethnic groups, somewhere in the area of um, 70 to 75 ethnic groups, are nations. Um, according to our constitution, we call them nations, nationalities, and people. Uh, and these nations, nationalities, and people uh, in the constitution have the right to self-determination, that is the right to rule themselves at the, at the regional level, but also participate in the right to share rule at the national level. And these groups also are given the right to succeed and become an independent state if they wish to. Uh, but you know that is simply the normative constitutional position. But in practice, the very possibility of organizing and mobilizing to secure and achieve uh, these constitutional provisions uh, could lead uh, to days, uh, could lead to uh, the elimination of politicians from uh, the political sphere. And that has been happening since this constitution came into force, and it's still happening. So I will, um, you're raising many important points. I just wanted to scroll back a little bit to the part about this question of have the aspirations and the political nuance of Hachalo's music translated into actual action. And I hear you saying no. Um, and maybe this is not the correct question. So that's up for debate. But I'm curious if you feel like um, Bekele, Jawar Mohammed, have they, have they been good custodians of, of Hachalu's vision, or is that even the right question to ask? By and large, the existing uh, oral political organizations have a common vision. Uh, there are differences in terms of uh, specific approaches, in terms of tactics, but in terms of the ultimate objective, most, um, I would say 95% of oral political organizations have uh, similar vision. And that vision is consistent uh, with the vision of Hajjalu Kundesa. Uh, so people like Jawar Mohammed, who are currently in jail, by the way, uh, have uh, promoted that vision where the Oromos would have proper uh, autonomy uh, as envisioned in the constitution, uh, that they are allowed to take care of their um, uh, issues at the national level in terms of having a full measure of self-government which is envisioned by the constitution. Uh, they also want uh, the federal government uh, to address some of the issues in terms of creating an equal environment, an equal space uh, for the various nations, nationalities, including the Oromos, uh, to be visible uh, in the national at the national level. So the Oromos want, for example, 
the Oromo language to become one of the working languages of the federal government in addition to Amharic. Because the Oromo language is spoken uh, by something like 45 to 50 million Oromos who live in Ethiopia. Um, and this language um, is not given the uh, respect, the attention that it deserves. Um, it's not the working language of the federal government. If it were the working language of the federal government, then that would have given an opportunity for Oromos to work uh, in federal uh, agencies. Imagine when you have a large constituency, a large community like the Oromos, and their language is not recognized as one of the languages, it means a significant number of Oromos who don't speak the Amharic language, who have not uh, studied and learned the Amharic language, will not be able to work in the federal agencies, the federal government. If you don't have such a large group of people not working, and it's in the language that it understands in, in that agency, then of course you have a problem. Um, there would not be um, you know, cultural equality because those things play a very important role in terms of um, creating a state of equality between languages and also allowing economic opportunities for people from those groups. Uh, so, so language is one of the demands. So people like Joar, Bekele, other political organizations have been pushing uh, for a similar thing. Uh, but unfortunately, um, those who have been pushing for those questions uh, have actually been um, arrested and detained uh, by the government on what I believe is a purely uh, political uh, case. Um, which I believe is intended uh, to eliminate these individuals from the political scene so that they could not um, pursue the kinds of questions that the Kailu has been asking and the Oromo people have been asking for a long period of time, not just since this government came to power, not since the previous government came to power, uh, but for the last 50 or so years. I was watching earlier an interview you did about a year ago alongside, um, I believe his name is Isaac Ashetu, um, and it was discussing this uh, kind of regional coup that had happened. Um, and in that interview, Isaac was stating, like, look, you know, Abi is someone who's instituted several um, kind of democratic reforms, uh, you know, brought back uh, political prisoners, had liberalized the media, had seemed to have some kind of anti-corruption platform. And, you know, through the lens of Western media up until very recently, looked like this very progressive um prime minister who was bringing forward this new kind of Ethiopia, you know, for what it's worth, whether that was accurate or not. Um, and, and to some degree, you know, living in America, you know, people can't distinguish. They don't know anything about Ethiopia besides feed the children half the time. And so maybe there's just not enough nuance so they couldn't understand that this this call to make Ethiopia great again um, and this call for unity was flattening out the fact that it's like a, 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 a pan, pan-ethnic state of all these different nationalities. Um, but I'm wondering, when did you begin questioning Abi and, and this kind of platform that he was bringing forward? Was it from the very beginning or was it, you know, watching him over time and then realizing that something was, was amiss? Well, I was one of, you know, the most outspoken supporters of uh, Abi Ahmed. Um, long before Abi Ahmed came into the political scene, I have been arguing for Oromos to make a bold and a positive case for the Ethiopian state because I 
genuinely believe that there is a room for reconstructing the Ethiopian state, um, not as a historical reality, but as a project of the future. Um, and when uh, the former uh, government, um, under the pressure from the Oromo protest, uh, collapsed uh, internal factors led uh, to the resignation of the prime minister and uh, Abiy Ahmed came to power. Uh, he said the right kinds of things. He did the right kinds of things. We all thought that this is a man who, you know, along with other people uh, in the party, we thought that this is a man who could actually uh, hold the key for changing the Ethiopian state. Um, I genuinely believe um, that there was an intent that was political lead uh, to do that. But um, as things um, over the course of time um, changed, um, certain steps were taken uh, by him, certain individuals who played a very pivotal role in bringing him forward uh, were marginalized. Uh, people like Lamma Magersa, for example, uh, who was the leader of the uh, Oromo People's Democratic Organization, from which Abid himself comes. Um, he was the leader of that party, but he decided to put Abid forward uh, to become uh, Ethiopia's prime minister uh, because there was some, um, from a constitutional point of view, Lamma could not have become a prime minister at the time without holding smart election. Uh, so he put uh, Abiy forward. Um, and Lemma was somebody that is um, seen as uh, having um, a very strong uh, Oromo nationalist credentials, somebody that was trusted and believed from the way he speaks, the manner in which he conducts himself. He's somebody that most people trusted. Uh, most people did not know Abiy, uh, but they trusted Lemma and they trusted the judgment. They said, or they thought, if Lemma believes that Abi could do a very good job by becoming prime minister, then you know most of us who are basically looking from outside and not really have a full picture of what is going on within the party and within the various forces in the country, um, then we thought that's the best way to go because you know one of the things that Romans have been asking for a very long time was you know the main thing was being able to rule themselves at the regional level. So if Lemma rules, uh, governs Oromia um, at the regional level, Abiy becomes prime minister, then uh, that can address the central question that Robert has been asking. Um, and, and you know, I strongly believe that Abiy could make a good prime minister in the sense that he appeals to a broader uh, section of the Ethiopian committee. Um, but, um, starting sometimes, I think, around September 2018, there were certain signs that weren't very clear. Uh, and then uh, Lema Magersa himself was removed. He was appointed as defense minister, which actually means um, somebody who sits around and participates in cabinet meetings and signs paper because um, you know, the commander-in-chief is the prime minister, the vice army forces are led by you know, generals, and there is a bit of uh, the chief of staff. So, so the defense minister actually has no power. So when Lemma was taken from Romeo's presidency and put as um, um, defense minister, I, you know, that was one of the moments when I had, wait a minute, what is 
actually going on. There wasn't anything that Lemma could not do uh, as Orome president, which she is expected to do uh, by becoming uh, Minister uh, of Defense. Uh, so I understood that as uh, getting rid of him, but because politically you can't simply saw him, uh, you put him somewhere where he remains relevant. And of course, he continued uh, to be relevant to that. Um, right now, I think it is, it's not unfair to describe him as some kind of uh, prisoner who is basically holding office space and doing nothing. Um, so, so that was the first moment when I um, began to, to have certain doubts. But Lemma himself, the way he describes the events also created some confusion because he did not clearly state that you know, he was basically removed against his will. Um, then the second most important moment where I thought there is probably a completely different vision that Abiy has than we thought was when he uh, transformed the then ruling party, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, into uh, what may be described as a pan-Ethiopian political party that does not actually reflect the various fault lines and social cleavages that existed in the country. Uh, as I said earlier, Ethiopia is a multi-ethnic nation, and most of the problems in that country were connected to ethnicity. That is how people have been organizing and mobilizing themselves. That is how the constitution is designed. When you suddenly shift from that kind of arrangement to one that is pan-Ethiopian in a country that is highly undemocratic, you are actually making a huge, considerably significant shift. And your commitment to the multinational federal order that exists in that country is really questionable when you do that. So I wrote an article basically expressing my concerns uh, specifically on this issue and why it is a very bad idea. Um, because one of the things that is actually suggested to me was that there's not really a genuine commitment to the multinational federal order that exists in that country. And there are very powerful forces who have been calling for a very long period of time uh, to uh, basically get rid of um, the, the, the multinational federal order that we have and replace it with some kind of geographic federalism, for example, which is a completely um, a meaningless idea in the context of Ethiopia because you create or you set up a federal system to solve a problem. It's not an easy system. It's a very complicated system. It's a very expensive system. You set it up because there is a problem of diversity that you want to manage, something that you cannot manage in any other way. When you do that, you set up the system based on the problems that you have. The problem that we have in Ethiopia is one that is based on ethnic identity. So even if you want to move away from that kind of system precisely because of the various tensions that it produces and generates over the course of time, it's not you know, a kind of innocent, unproblematic kind of structure. It is problematic. But the way to do that is not simply by um, uh, getting rid of that kind of structure. It is by addressing you... the real problems uh, that necessitated that structure in the first place. Sorry. No, no, sorry to cut you off. I was just curious, did you attribute um, this shift to, you know, I've, I've been hearing a lot of different theories. So some argue that, you know, the appointment of a neo-Neftenyamp uh, policy advisor 
um, ostensibly moved him into a very different direction than those who initially supported him? Um, is he just naive given his age? Do you think he ultimately, this was always his idea? What do you kind of attribute to this really significant shift? Well, I think there is every reason to now believe that these are his views. These are things that he believes in. Uh, he has, I think, made um, very explicit suggestions, um, made statements from which you can very clearly infer as to his idea is vision uh, for the future. Uh, he has talked about this glorious past of the Ethiopian states that he wants to um, bring back uh, a glorious past, a harmonious society that will coexisted without any problems. And, and, and that um, harmony and consistence was somewhat uh, ruptured by uh, the kind of multinational uh, federal system that, that we had over the last 27 years. It's true that the multinational federal system did not work. It was not implemented. Uh, because the system was extremely uh, anti-democratic and oppressive, it's dominated by elites from Tigrayan uh, ethnic groups. So they didn't make the system work, although the structure was there. The structure did allow certain things, such as, for example, people were able to govern, uh, to, to uh, use their language uh, at the regional level, so people go to courts and they would be judged uh, with their language. Uh, children learn uh, with their language. Uh, governments are run by uh, using language uh, that is uh, used by that group. So, so that has enabled a lot. And in fact, what made the change that happened in 2018 possible is precisely the political consciousness and awakening uh, that has happened uh, under this system over the last uh, 27 years. Um, so, so while those are, you know, systems that were not fully implemented. The idea that the country basically went back over the last 27 years and that there was a certain glorious past uh, is not a historical account that most people of the South, not just Oromo, the Somalis and the Sidamas and the Walaitas, um, you know, people in Gambela and Afar, I don't think most of those people identify with it. Um, so, so he is somebody who had that kind of view. You know, he is somebody, for example, who uh, spoke about Mirlik's greatness. Uh, not only that, but he uh, basically installed a bust of Mirlik and Haile Selassie um, in, in his palace, um, something that most almost found an insult and the disrespect uh, with which uh, he holds uh, the Oromo people. Um, so, so these are some of the manifestations, I think. But, but some of us saw those as maybe a strategic uh, statement uh, that says that, well, Ethiopia has a very complex history. While you know, we try to move forward, uh, let us remember the bad and the good of this history as well, and let us see if there is something that we can learn from it. Uh, there is a very strong constituency that you know, celebrates Merlake last minute for all sorts of reasons. Uh, we thought maybe he found it important to appeal uh, to that particular group to, um, uh, to, to be able to push back against some of the forces uh, that were 
making what we considered was a reform at the time, namely uh, the TPLF. Um, but looking back now, um, with the events uh, since Haj al-Hundesa's assassination, I think those were all strategic maneuvers on the part of the prime minister to make sure that he consolidates power, he reorganizes the security and intelligence forces, reorganizes the military, reorganizes the ruling party, and makes sure that he's under firm control and then pushes the agenda forward. And I think that's exactly what he has been doing the last one month uh, since the assassination. The part that I'm totally confused by, and I don't know if this is, you know, I am a monolingual English speaker and I'm basically subjected to reading either Western media reports, social media, or some kind of like NGO reports. So I don't know if maybe I just the analysis hasn't been made available to me, but I'm just baffled by his decision to invite, not only to invite back political dissidents, but also sections of like basically their army. Like why... It just seems even even if we assume that, you know, he has always had this agenda that he's evil and he didn't want to put in these real democratic reforms that were part of his brand. Why? Why do that? Because, you know, looking at this current political moment, it seems like he almost set up his own his own downfall. Um, it was this just uh, like narcissism that he didn't think that this would invite his own uh, decline or what? what is your kind of take on that? Well, inviting the various political forces that were um, removed from the Ethiopian political scene by the previous government uh, won him a lot of praise and a lot of accolades. Uh, almost every political commentator uh, begins with some of you know those very major political steps that he has taken. Um, so one of the reasons why he was in some press uh, described as the Africa's Mutualism is because uh, he has done those things. But frankly, when you think about it, those are the forces who, in one way or another, fought to bring about those change. Uh, the Oromo protests could not have really existed without the Oromo Liberation Front, which was declared a terrorist organization by the previous government and working from outside. Um, uh, there are also other groups, such as the Robert National Liberation Front, uh, the Gimbo uh, uh, 7 Patriotic Front, these are the three organizations uh, that were declared terrorist organizations, major organizations returned um, when Abiy came to power. It would not have been possible for Abiy Ahmed to speak of any idea of transition without allowing those forces back. It was to his advantage, it worked for him, it helped him very much. Uh, but the Oromo Liberation Front was the one movement where um, the party essentially refused to disarm. They refused to disarm because they didn't trust um, the prime minister and his government. Uh, most of us at the time um, argued, uh, called upon uh, the Oromo Liberation Front uh, to lay down arms uh, participate in what we, we thought were uh, a democratic process. Uh, they refused, um, but you know, quite frankly, it seems to me that they are actually vindicated uh, that they knew something that uh, this is a prime minister uh, who is neither democratic uh, nor believed in progressive ideas of uh, changing and reconstructing the Ethiopian states. Uh, these ideas. In most cases, things that he talks about 
uh, where a certain uh, Ethiopia that is not acceptable to uh, most people uh, who live in in southern part of Ethiopia, including uh, the Oromos, is um, almost supremacist, very decadent, reactionary uh, Ethiopia that is led by kings. Uh, the prime minister also you know, very openly talks about how his mom told him when he was a child that he would be the seventh king. He talks about this um, quite often. Um, most people think that that is his aspiration. That's his infatuation with the kind of monarchical system. Um, so um, there were um, organizations that were allowed back into the country, but by allowing those organizations back into the country, he only benefited from that. Uh, because as a government, he knows that at any point um, he would be able to weaken his opposition uh, forces because, um, you know, ultimately you're talking about a government with highly authoritarian culture. Uh, all is new is various ways of manipulation and deception uh, and, and, and governing through, uh, through that. Uh, so he knew that inviting them at the beginning would win him. Uh, a considerable level of trust and support, both domestically and internationally. Uh, after consolidating power, uh, that he would be able to take on them uh, by you know, manufacturing all sorts of crises, because governments in most cases, particularly authoritarian governments, thrive on crisis. You manufacture crises, you declare emergencies, and you have to go at your um, political force. Uh, he knows that could be done very easily. Uh, he also knows that some of the confrontation could be used to his advantage, and that is exactly uh, what he has been doing. So, so instead of creating a problem for himself by inviting these forces, I think he benefited considerably uh, out of that. Um, so we've we're at like the thirty-eight minute mark. So I want to discuss with you um, three of the major kind of. Uh, critiques, allegations against the Arumba protest movement um, that I haven't found any evidence to substantiate, but they come up in almost every kind of report uh, available currently covering the Arumba protest. So one is that there's this uh, outside agitators that under the cover of grief and movement uh, following Hachalo's assassination are funded by the Egyptians and that there's this... Um, you know, armed section that maybe doesn't represent the Oromo protesters, but is acting in their name, um, that is somehow being funded by the Egyptians in order to interfere with the dam. So that's the first one. And I'm just curious, you know, do you, is this just a conspiracy theory? Um, even if, even if it was true, would this even be able to impact kind of the, the negotiation of the dam? What's your take on that? So I've actually not read any, um, reports from any credible uh, human rights organization or a serious organization linking the Oromo protests to uh, the armed um, rebels or linking the Oromo protests to um, Egyptians and, and any uh, political adversary of the Ethiopian states that is beyond Ethiopia. The prime minister, however, um, shortly after the assassination of Haj Ali, uh, tried to pin Hajjal's assassination on every single adversary that he has in the Ethiopian state, starting from the Oromo Media Network uh, to the Oromo Liberation Front to the Tigrayan People Liberation Front to Egypt. Everyone 
as having worked in some kind of joint criminal enterprise to assassinate him and bring about um, you know, political instability within the Ethiopian state. He has not provided any evidence. Um, there is absolutely no reason to believe uh, that uh, the Oromo protests have somehow um, uh, collaborated with, with anyone. In fact, I mean, the Oromo protest is, is a social movement. Uh, it is largely leaderless. Um, its leaders are individuals who lead um, you know, highly dispersed uh, networks uh, of people who are organized at the local level. Uh, usually, whenever there are problems, calls are made. Um, so everyone understands that there are problems and people respond. Uh, but the Oromo protests uh, have actually stopped as a movement when Abiy Ahmed came to power, because everybody was expecting that Abiy Ahmed would address central questions of the Oromo protests. Now, the Oromo protests started again after Abiy Ahmed arrested. Um, you know, Ajab was assassinated. He arrested all the major political voices that Oromo had. Uh, people like Dior Mohammed, people like Patala Gerba from the Oromo Federalist Congress, uh, people like Shubhik Galete and other people from the Oromo Liberation Front, uh, other prominent individuals, activists and journalists, uh, and a significant uh, militarization of the Oromia region um, after the assassination of Hajjali. So when that happened, the Oromo protest again uh, began to respond. Um, but the idea is that a dispersed social movement that doesn't have a very clear leader could somewhat collaborate with it. I think that is nonsense. It, it's just not, you know, remotely plausible. Um, it, you know, the, the government also linked uh, the Oromo movement with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which is the party that dominated Oromos the most, oppressed them the most when they were in power. Um, that too is not backed up by any evidence. Um, I think the investigation around Hajjali. Uh, has been extremely shambolic. There are so many things that doesn't add up. One of the very obvious things that we have seen is the government's determination to use his assassination as a weapon to basically eliminate all the political adversaries from the political scene. That is one of the major things that we've seen. So I, I have not seen actually any, as I, as I said, serious reports linking uh, these groups uh, with, with Egyptians. Um, and, and you know, every authoritarian government, uh, whenever there are internal problems and centers, one of the ways they try and expunge them from history and from uh, political action is by accusing them of treason uh, and disloyalty. Uh, the prime minister has used those languages on several occasions, uh, but frankly, there is no evidence whatsoever. That's also what I found in trying to pursue that claim. Uh, I have to look up the link for some of the reports around the Egyptian connection. Uh, Minority Rights Group International, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they put out a statement on July 2nd, to, July 22nd, I'm sorry, 2020, stating recent violence in Ethiopia's Romo region shows hallmark signs of ethnic cleansing. Um, there's a lot of allegations in here, but they don't cite any particular evidence, others just say there's spin reports. Um, Hamimu Musudi, who has from Kampala, Uganda, who wrote this report, I reached out to them and I haven't heard back. 
Um, but there are those claiming, and particularly in Sheshamani, where there was property damage, that there are some section of, of Oromo people who are not from that town who were brought in and were specifically targeting uh, uh, both other ethnic groups and then Oromos who are not Muslim. And the like, what people are citing kind of conceptually for this is the phrase neo neftenia just in general and saying that these are extremists um, and that the, the, the political platform is inherently uh, provincial by, by resting on kind of an ethnic claim to autonomy rather than this uh, pan-Ethiopian state. Um, and so while I've had, I found zero evidence to substantiate that, that there is this kind of inter ethnic cleansing, uh, because it's out there, I think it's important to address it. And so um, what do yeah, you think? Um, I, I guess um, I think I've touched on uh, at the beginning, um, the prime minister's vision for the country is one that sees multinational federalism as a problem. Uh, and there are very powerful forces, uh, the old regime, or called the ancient regime, uh, who has been campaigning against ethnic federalism, who has been arguing that all the ills and misfortunes of the Ethiopian state faced over the last 30, 40 years, not, not, not 40 years, 30 years, uh, have been the results of this um, um, uh, what they call ethnic federalism. Um, in fact, some of them go as far as saying that uh, the Oromos and the Somalis and the Tigrayans and so on and so forth, as people were created, uh, that they didn't have an existence, they were created by the system. Um, and I think the strategies that I see here, which has been made very clear, is that this political structure allowed for the sharpening up of ethnic identity and ethnic division, uh, and therefore leading to hate, um, inter inter-ethnic disharmony, um, and therefore the only way that the Ethiopian state could have the kind of unity and harmony, inter-ethnic harmony and coexistence that it had was if we abandon, get rid of the multinational federal system and return to the older unitarist system. Those who say that we don't mean unitary system, we can have a different kind of federal system based on region, based on geography like the US, I think that, as I said, was a completely bogus idea because you do not need a federal system in Ethiopia that is not based on ethnic identity because the problem in Ethiopia is one that is primarily ethnic in nature. So if that is the problem that you want to address, which is a problem of diversity, the problem of regional um, cultural justice, the federal system that you need is one that addresses that problem. We do not have a random geographic problem that needs to be addressed by some kind of geographic federalism. So, so those groups and the prime minister who holds the levers of state power now are uh, really want to find a justification. And the best justification they could come up with is one that uh, accuses the Oromos of the ultimate crime, which is a systematic and organized campaign to exterminate uh, non-Oromos. Now, one of the reasons why this claim doesn't add up 
is simply because most of the victims in this um, attack were Oromos. 68%, according to government figures, 68% are Oromos. Now, when one points out that 68% of people who were killed in this violence were Oromos, how would you have a situation in which Oromos perpetrates a crime of genocide against Oromos? So conceptually, simply impossible. And then they shift to the argument that, well, it is also a religious-based attack, uh, in the sense that Oromos who were Christians were also attacked in these regions that are predominantly Muslims. The problem with that is that this is a region that is mobilized, not based on religion, but based on ethnicity. Ethnicity is the simple, the single most important marker of political organization, political mobilization in that region. Now, in a country where people's understanding of their political situation, their predicament is based on ethnicity and their awakening and political consciousness is along that line, how would Muslim Oromos somewhat targets um, Christian Oromos for what end? So, so the very idea that there is an intent to you know exterminate anyone is really laughable. Now, genocide of a crime uh, is is the ultimate crime. There is nothing worse that you can commit more than that. And it's characterized by um, a certain systematicity in terms of the plan to exterminate a protected group either in whole or in part. Has anybody shown any evidence that there was an intention, a plan to exterminate a group? How many people were killed? Some 200 plus people were killed. Do you have any example around the world in which 100, 200 people were killed and then that was labeled a genocide? This is ridiculously worrying. This is a morally bankrupt claim, I think, um, being used by people whose agenda is basically to use this claim to justify what the prime minister is doing, which is getting trying to get rid of the multinational federal order. And some people are very clearly saying that the reason we have this problem is because we have um, ethnic federalism in the country. And there were people who were actually manufacturing, who were putting together documentaries based on lies to justify this, to kind of give blood and flesh, kind of to give it a bodily form to this claim of genocide. There was um, a video uh, produced by a certain organization uh, where they falsely claimed that a woman was a nine-month pregnant woman was beheaded um, and disemboweled in front of her children. And it was then proven that this was actually false. The woman was the woman died um, in a hospital two weeks after the alleged event, that she had a pre-existing condition. Um, she was uh, diabetic. Uh, and her days was not related to this very graphic uh, picture that was, that was given. So we know very clearly that there were people who are using all sorts of claims and allegations to promote the view that uh, the, the, the international fair order that exists in Ethiopia could lead to genocide. 
um, but it did not exist. It, it did not happen. That it, people killed each other. We don't know actually who killed who. We don't know who brought these people uh, from outside uh, the uh, Most people report that government forces were simply sitting there and watching, saying that they have not been given order. Um, why do you expect, why would a policeman expect some kind of order or destruction to prevent the destruction of property and, and killing human beings? Isn't that their primary task for which they were there and for which they were paid? So, so the idea that almost perpetrated this in of itself is a question to me. Why wouldn't we consider the possibility that there are some dark forces behind this? Even if we assume that almost individuals who are almost perpetrated this, it's a lot more complicated because most of the victims are Oromos. So you cannot have genocide when the majority of the victims are people who are accused of perpetrating genocide, and also without any credible substantial body of evidence that there was an intent to bring about a partial or complete extermination of that group. You simply cannot. So these are people who have their own agenda, who are using the suffering of people on the ground to advance that political agenda, unfortunately. We talked about minority rights groups um, using the language of ethnic cleansing. So they were basically saying that uh, the violence have the hallmarks of uh, ethnic cleansing. Uh, they have not done any uh, research themselves. Uh, these are based on information that they were given. Uh, they are advocacy organizations. So their job is to basically raise an alarm before things happen. Um, I, I have been in contact with people who work for that organization. Um, they were provided information um, by actors that they don't fully um, understand. Uh, I am told that they are working on a second uh, statement, basically clarifying their position, uh, but they accept that there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that um, what actually happened um, was uh, an instance of ethnic cleansing. And I have I've reached out to them and I've asked them, um, you know, what's the evidence? And what definition of ethnic cleansing? Um, and they responded to you? I never received a response because it's one of um, the few, like, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I did have extensive conversation uh, with, with the director about this. Um, and I asked specifically what definition of ethnic cleansing was used because um, ethnic cleansing is not uh, a crime that is defined in international law or in any uh, domestic context. It's only in the context of the Serbian war uh, that language was used. In fact, it's a translation uh, from that language. Um, the United Nations Commission of Inquiry, uh, while looking at the Serbian situation, uh, has used that language as a very specific understanding for the purpose of that inquiry. But beyond that, there is no uh, agreed-upon universal definition of what constitutes um, ethnic cleansing. So, so I did ask whether there was evidence that they have seen. Uh, they accept, they agree uh, that they have not seen um, any evidence. But us, an advocacy organization, whose job is to raise an alarm, their instinct was when they heard this, well, there is something happening that I need to. Uh, speak about it. But I know, as I said, they are currently working on another statement uh, to clarify that position. Uh, you know, 
honestly, that statement has been politicized and used by people who were promoting or peddling this narrative uh, as somewhat evidence, because this is an, an international organization, just as we use their uh, statement as evidence, um, most people who don't necessarily understand how these organizations work and where they kind of um, stand in terms of how they look at issues, um, usually, you know, buy onto that and the kind of uh, very inflammatory and, and incendiary language that is used um, you know, on the title. Uh, that has been used quite a lot by the people who are peddling this narrative that there was genocide, there was this cleansing. Was this just kind of shock, shocking because there's no, like it says, reports to us as well as media coverage. It's very nonspecific. I mean, it's, a, it's an extremely serious allegation to make in the absence of linking even the, what are the media coverage or being kind of specific about how you're making this claim given kind of the implications once you categorically declare a marginalized group that's leading a movement as perpetuating ethnic cleansing. I mean, that's like a very serious claim to make in the absence of any evidence that you would integrate into insight in the report. Absolutely. Um, I think I said it's ridiculous because usually these are abuses that are perpetrated not by marginalized groups, but by those who are in a position of power, um, whether it is a state power or those in control of a particular territory, um, almost are not, at least so-called, the movement that perpetrated allegedly this, this violence uh, is not in control of anything. One of the questions so, I'm not asking is why are the security forces simply standing there and watching? Since when is police forces expected to get um, specific instruction to stop people from destroying property and um, um, uh, killing people in, in, in the way some of these allegations were presented? So for me, I think there's, there's a much more serious question to ask of the government itself. Well, also kind of connects, you know, so one of the things I was thinking about is that my research focus is really like tech policy, privacy, and surveillance. And so we talk a lot about misinformation, disinformation campaigns. And so, you know, in Ethiopia, where one, you have a, a political state that's willing to shut down the internet, and then you you had rolling blackouts prior to that. It's very difficult without like universal kind of high quality connections to the internet to then like battle and disentangle like what is true and not true along with all the constraints on like independent media um and so you know we're almost at the hour mark and what i would like to kind of spend the rest of the time talking about is kind of hearing from you um you know where do you kind of locate hope in this situation and within kind of the pragmatic constraints of both uh, who are the primary actors in 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 the political resistance and who's currently in power and kind of what they the resources that they have access to, kind of what do you see as, you know, positive possibilities and opportunities and maybe what are your concerns as far as on the movement side? Sorry, not, not Abhi's side. So the movement right now is really um, at its weakest point if we are talking about the Oromo protest. Uh, back in 2015 when the Oromo protests kind of relaunched itself as a new kind of movement. You know, Oromo movements have been around for a very long period of time, but uh, there were specific historical events uh, that uh, refashioned the Oromo protests and the Oromo movements uh, by 2015. 
you know, the availability, the, the, the widespread availability of social media is one of those things, but there were also other, other factors. Um, but at that time, even those groups, those forces who did not necessarily support Oromos and Oromos' vision for the Ethiopian state, supported the Oromo protest because the Oromos protest was fighting against an oppressive regime that oppressed other forces as well. Now we have a completely different realignment of forces within the country. Some of those groups who were um, supporting the Oromo uh, protest, um, what you know, groups who describe themselves as pan-Ethiopian, although there is nothing um, that can be properly described as pan-Ethiopian nationalism, um, because Ethiopia is an empire, so cannot have a nationalism that is Ethiopian. You can have a patriotism, but, but they describe themselves as pan-Ethiopian, uh, people who are committed to um, a single unified Ethiopia. They claim that they believe in ideas of the rule of law and, and human rights and constitutional democracy, uh, but the country that is kind of uh, ethnically blind and so on and so forth. But, but that's basically a code word for Amara hegemony in my view in the Ethiopian context. Uh, those groups supported uh, the Oromo protests uh, back then. Now that group has completely aligned itself with uh, Abiy's government. Um, and some of the uh, key leaders of the Oromo protest movements, uh, some of them are arrested, some of them are working with the government because they are kind of integrated into, into the system over the course of the last two years. It has become very difficult for them to... Um, get out of uh, the system uh, because there are rents and all sorts of things for which people were caught up and can't uh, can't leave a particular movement uh, so so the movement right now is at its weakest uh, point um, but um, I think going forward um, there are the possibilities for the normal uh, protest itself uh, or protest to zero uh, to refashion, uh, itself uh, and, and confront the system, especially if Abiy is uh, heading in the direction of um, um, basically resurrecting uh, the old decadent uh, Ethiopia um, in the name of some kind of constitutional settlement. Um, the Prime Minister, of course, as the head of government, uh, has all the resources at his disposal. Ethiopia is a country that thrived on surveillance and use of technology to uh, carry out surveillance not only on domestic dissidents but also dissidents who are based abroad and, and that is a history that is extensively documented. Um, they will continue to do that um, now um, uh, but given uh, the level of mobilization and political awareness and awakening that have taken place within the Oromo public over the last uh, five or so years, it's almost impossible in my view uh, to subdue this, this constituency by force and somewhat govern the Ethiopian states uh, that was created in the image of uh, the current prime minister. Um, what I think uh, would be useful for the country um, going forward and also for the prime minister is uh, to release all political prisoners, um, recognize that they are important stakeholders, 
and return on a path to transition to democracy. The path he is on right now is a path to authoritarianism. It's important that he recognizes that there is a limit to his power, there's a limit to his agency, that it is almost impossible to uh, reconstruct the country in his own image that uh, happens back to the past um, and work towards a political settlement for the country. And a political settlement cannot be imposed by a single individual. It needs to be negotiated. So what the country needs in institutional terms is what we call national dialogue. It may be a very difficult enterprise. It may not work the first time. It may not work the second time. But there is no other way in which Ethiopia's future uh, constitutional relations can be addressed. There has to be a negotiated um, way out of the current entanglement. Uh, that can only be achieved by having an all-inclusive um, uh, national dialogue process that would lead to some kind of agreed roadmap uh, that would be implemented either by the government or uh, by uh, an agreed entity uh, between the stakeholders. That, I think, is the only way that Ethiopia could have a peaceful future, um, a future that most Ethiopians identify with. Uh, but Do you think time, this is possible, though? This sounds very optimistic. Um, do you see indications that this is possible? to happen in the near future, that either the protesters can can articulate this demand effectively and kind of leverage what they have, or that Abi will make these kind of concessions? So from the position of the protesters right now, what I think what they are trying to do is to show the prime minister that it is impossible to run uh, the country with an iron fist as he's trying to do. Uh, so they are calling economic boycotts, um, uh, blockades and road closures uh, that have been making it very difficult uh, for people at the center, particularly in Addis and surrounding areas, to get basic necessities. Um, and they have done that um, very successfully uh, this week. Uh, it seems to me that this is going to uh, continue. Um, and I think if the prime minister doesn't come to the census, um, they will use different tactics as they did um, against the previous government. Uh, I think the aim is to um, force the prime minister to, to realize the limits of his power, to release uh, the key stakeholders that he has arrested and put behind bars, uh, negotiate a way forward for the country with the view to arriving at political settlement. And I think that is what most people are asking for. Uh, but obviously, um, from the way he has conducted himself, the Prime Minister doesn't seem um, to have any interest really in, in reaching that kind of uh, negative settlement. Um, but I think this is going to be a very hard and very long battle, especially for uh, the various protest movements. Um, I think a lot could depend on how the Prime Minister responds. But this notion that there is this glorious um, past to which the Ethiopian state could return. And that past includes a celebration of people who committed atrocities against certain groups. Um, 
that is not an idea that is going to go down. Um, that kind of Ethiopia would not be accepted uh, by the Oromos. Uh, so I suppose if we were to continue down this path, uh, we will have uh, another round of very violent, uh, very um, unstable uh, period um, and a new kind of political history where um, what he is doing right now would basically plant the seeds that would come back to haunt him, that would be uh, basically uh, serve as a menace to destabilize the Ethiopian state and, and makes uh, future coexistence and uh, compromise uh, very difficult to be more possible. Compromise is already very difficult. National consensus is something that people have been talking about has never been achieved. Uh, his current actions and the actions of several groups, including those people who talk about uh, this crazy allegations of genocide and whatnot, uh, those are allegations that make collective coexistence in the future very difficult, if not impossible. Thank you. I just have one uh, very, very somewhat of a tangential question. Um, but there's also this another set of critiques that says, you know, that the, the, and I have terrible accent, so sorry, Kero movement is ahistorical by making these claims of Haile Selassie representing settler colonialism and that that's a, a, Western, a Western concept that doesn't translate to a situation where Haile is a member of the ruling class, yet he had the Battle of Adwa. Um, and in a lot of ways that can be addressed with kind of what you were explaining about uh, be resurrecting this idea of uh, making Ethiopia great again through celebrating Menelik and these, these African kings. But the very specific question I had for you is that one hyper-specific part of this critique is that this question of why did the Roma movement push to have, when it became written, to be written in Roman Cyrillic letters, where ostensibly you're doubling the length of every word, um, rather than using Amharic uh, lettering that you know is is native to the continent and would have allowed it to be simplified and more accessible in the written form, and is that kind of representative of just anything to get away from? like the Amhara culture that has felt stifling, or was this a misstep? I know this is a little very specific, but I'm just curious on uh, what you think about that. <laughs> uh, it's very interesting because uh, uh, the extent to which um, the uh, so-called Ethiopianist Amhara elite tried to control uh, and choose uh, how a particular nation should um, um, think about what is appropriate to use in terms of advancing its culture, advancing its language. And the first question for me is that most of these people who come up with this kind of critique themselves do not speak the Oromo language. So how would you somewhat uh, become an expert in terms of advising what would be the most appropriate, most accurate and helpful um, letters to use uh, for the Oromo language when you don't even speak the language. Um, so, so for me, the, the choice of Latin alphabets is appropriate because as a Cushetic language, um, most of the sounds and the phonetics um, are better captured uh, in that language than, than the Amharic language. 
Um, in addition to that, uh, the Latin alphabet had the possibility of uh, being used uh, in a lot of different ways and very easily. So I, for example, um, you know, write mostly um, in English. Um, there is a, you know, a keyboard that is made for that language. When I write in Afan Oromo, in the Oromo language, it's very easy for me. I'll just use the same thing that I use for English. But for Amharic, it is very difficult to write. You have to use a combination of different keys. It actually takes three, four times more uh, than the English uh, or the Afan Oromo, uh, writing Afan Oromo. So, so I think my, what I say in, in terms of that, I don't think it's a critique, and I think it's a hegemonic um, claim that uh, everybody should somewhat mimic uh, this grand um, Amharic language or Giz alphabet. I mean, Amharic and Giz are Semitic languages and Afan Oromo is Cushitic language. So those are two very different families of languages. Um, and, and the idea that um, uh, Oromos have to, no matter what, use that language, uh, where in fact it is not suitable. Um, I think it's basically reflective of the the kind of this internal urge and will to control uh, and police uh, what other groups do in terms of promoting and uh, advancing their language. And I think that decision should be left to the Oromos because it is the Oromos who are making a determination of what particular um, uh, alphabet they should use um, in, in terms of advancing and promoting their language. Uh, there is absolutely no legitimate, no reasonable critique there. Uh, it has nothing to do with you know, getting away from everything Amara, uh, but it is based on its appropriateness uh, to, to kind of fundamental features of the Oromo language, but also uh, to, to the convenience in, in the sense that I described um, earlier. Thank you. So ostensibly, that's it for my questions. I just want to give you the opportunity if you want um, to add anything about your work or to the situation, given that, you know, a large part of our audience is definitely going to be in the diaspora and Western nations and might not have access to direct information about what's going on in Ethiopia. Is there anything that you feel like was not covered in the course of this conversation that you want to include? Uh, I think we have covered a lot of ground. Um, but I think what is really important is that there is this perception that the current prime minister uh, who won the Nobel Prize uh, was somebody that is committed to peace and justice and fairness and so on. So he talks a lot about reconciliation and love and, and that kind of stuff. Um, if you talk about these things, understanding the complex sociological realities that underlie all of these things, when we talk about reconciliation, we talk about truths, it's not just in, in the very literal and simplistic sense of truths, you know, in terms of conversations between two individuals or relationships between two individuals. The fact that you and I had this conversation today is true. It's kind of factual truth. It happened as a matter of fact. But political truths are a lot more complicated. They are sometimes take on a narrative form, sometimes take on a very personal form, sometimes take on an institutional form, sometimes take on a historical form. Um, the same thing with reconciliation, the same thing with the idea of love. I mean, to talk about these this, this notions in very simplistic and shallow terms, but you don't actually understand how complex they are in a highly 
divided, um, you know, um, hegemonic social uh, context where there are uh, symmetric structures of power uh, that kept certain groups on top and certain groups uh, at the margin, um, then I think it creates a situation where people outside the country think that, well, there is this dynamic leader bringing change to the country, but actually this leader doesn't actually have a very good grasp of what he is doing. Um, so it's not really clear to me what intention that he has. He may think that what he is doing is good for the Turkish state. Uh, but there is a considerable lack of understanding, and this could lead Ethiopia. Um, I think the country is already on the precipice. Um, I think it may plunge uh, into its depths. It makes it very difficult for anyone to pull it back uh, from there. Um, so we might end up having a divided Ethiopia where various groups uh, invoke their right to become independent state. Because remember, becoming an independent state in Ethiopia is a constitutional right. Um, so I think anyone who is interested in Ethiopia as kind of a political entity, as uh, a strategically important country in the world, probably, uh, needs to take a much more closer attention to understand its diversity, to understand its structural uncertainties, its complexity, uh, without that kind of headline stories that we hear. And this unscrupulous, unscrupulous claim about um, genocide and ethnic cleansing, um, e even when the intention is good, like minority rights did, um, I think could have serious ramifications uh, for Ethiopia. So it's one of those countries that really require a closer attention and focus uh, to understand. Um, I think that's one thing that I would add to all the conversations that we have uh, for the time of the all right, thank you. 